I know in the group that I'm looking at this morning that there are a lot of very capable cooks. I also know that in this group, not all people are capable when it comes to being a a cook in the kitchen. Yet I, I do think that all of us that are here this morning know the difference between a boiling pot and a simmering pot. I think we at least are able to understand that basic principle of cooking. We, we can visibly identify when something's boiling, can't we? We, we see the, the vigorous bubbles that are rising up. We, we see the, the bubbles breaking the surface. We, we see splashing often. We, we see all this vigorous stuff. At, at the time we look away, usually, on at least when I'm in the kitchen and I'm trying to boil something, about the time I look away, that's when it foams up and goes right over the top, making a mess. We understand boiling. But by contrast, when something is simmering, there's still bubbles, but the vigor is lacking. It's not the same. Rather than the rapid activity uh, that we see with a boil, there's this steady movement of the liquid. There is a chance of of flashing, especially if it's like um, tomato-based or something like that, spaghetti sauce. I always manage to splash that all over the stove whenever I'm cooking, it seems like inevitably, but, but the chance of something actually bubbling up and going over the top is almost meal when something's simmering. We know the difference between boiling and simmering. The, the difference is one of energy. It's much more energy being put out and much more energy is involved when something's boiling than, than when something simmers. I want us to think about that difference this morning as we turn to our text. This morning we're coming back to our series on developing genuine love. Love is that distinguishing mark as a Christian that's held out that which should be a vital concern for all of us so that the world can see that we are truly followers of Christ. Love distinguishes us. Our Savior has instructed us to love one another. We, we cannot simply do things that we call love, though. We need to get love right. Our love needs to be genuine love. It needs to be the real deal. It has to be what God calls love. To help us achieve the goal of genuine love, Paul gives us a list of characteristics in Romans chapter 12 that we've been looking at in this series. We've been looking at this list for a few weeks now as we develop this idea of of genuine love. We we understand that that Paul has not only listed characteristics so that that we can look at others and see it. Paul is giving us this list so that we can generate genuine love ourselves. As Christians, we must love one another. It must be the real deal. It must be love as he labeled the list without hypocrisy. We must examine our lives. We must evaluate our love. We must ensure that these characteristics are there. We must make sure our love is genuine. Now, unless we do that continually, our love may fall short. It may be that over time we fall back into our sinful habits, those old nature kinds of behaviors that we've had for so long, So genuine Christian love takes ongoing work. We have to continually be checking ourselves, evaluating. Christian, genuine love strives for the good of others. 
Genuine love is always other-centered, never self-centered. It focuses on what will help others. Let's look at Paul's list in Romans 12. So far, we've looked at the first few characteristics that he gives us, beginning in verse 9. He heads his list with, let's love be without hypocrisy. In other words, it needs to be genuine. It needs to be the real deal. We start with abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. That's how far we've gotten so far in our series here. This morning we're going to consider the next characteristic that Paul gives us there in verse 11. This quite likely is the shortest text I've ever used as the basis of a sermon. Just like we have in the English version translated here in the original Greek, we're considering three whole words today. Fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. That's the the entirety of our sermon. Fervent in spirit. That's the next thing that Paul lists here. In order to ensure that our love is the real thing, he says it must be fervent in spirit. It's clear from from what Paul says that our takeaway this morning is that only fervent love is genuine love. It's that simple. The only kind of love that is genuine is fervent love. But what is fervent love? How do we know if we have fervent love or not? How how can we spot the difference between fervent love and non-fervent love? We know how to tell if water's boiling or if it's simmering, but how can we tell if our love is different? These are the kinds of questions that we want to answer this morning as we unpack this short phrase. Only fervent love is genuine love. Since our goal is genuine love, the the first thing I want us to consider this morning is that means that obviously our love must have genuine fervency. Our love must have genuine fervency. Most of our English versions translate the the verb that Paul uses as fervent, or some may use fervor. The the New English translation is one of the exceptions. It uses the word enthusiastic, but both words, all these words, are attempting to bring out the the meaning of of this rather uncommon word that, that Paul chose when he expressed this characteristic. Paul picked a a word that's not real common. In fact, it's only used one other time in in the New Testament. And and that's in Acts chapter 18, verse 25. It's used to describe Apollos. Luke records that this man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the, the baptism of John. Now, If you know your your New Testament history, the book of Acts, we know that Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside and filled in some gaps that he had. He didn't understand the full work of Jesus Christ. He only got to the the baptism of John, and they filled it in so that he was able to improve in his witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The point is, uh, Apollos is called out as being a person who is fervent in spirit. He has this trait that that we're to have. Fervent in spirit, the the same idea. He was fervent. Whatever this trait is, Apollos had it. 
we need to have the same thing. We are called to be fervent in spirit. I mentioned that the word is a bit uncommon. The, the literal meaning of the word is that it describes water is boiling. That's why I had us start thinking about that. That's the literal meaning of the word that Paul uses, used for water when it's boiling. Think about how vigorous water is as it boils. There, there's bubbles rising from the bottom of the pot. They, they break the surface continually. The, the surface is, is roiling, rolling as it, it, it bursts forth with the bubbles. The, it's splashing, it's bouncing. It's anything but calm. Well, metaphorically, the, this Greek word was used to describe an inflamed emotional state that was similar in, in idea to water boiling. Metaphorically, think about water boiling and then apply it to the emotional state. Emotions can cause us to feel as if we're boiling water, that, that there's this energy within us, this activity, things are, are moving and bouncing. Obviously, we think of anger as one emotion that, that causes that kind of a turmoil within us. Anger, in that case, actually this word in Greek is sometimes used outside the New Testament to describe anger, and when it's translated in English, then we'd use a word like seething in anger, the active idea. But the idea that Paul is communicating here doesn't have quite that same context. It doesn't fit the context of love. And yet he's using this same word. Paul's clearly communicating that the genuine love must have an energized emotional component to it. We, we cannot be calm and sedate emotionally if we have genuine love. Rather, our emotions have to have a, a strong component to them, a, a fervor. And our fervor must be genuine. We, we, we cannot fake fervor without turning our love into to something that is equally fake. Now, I'm sure we've all sat around in groups and, and had times when we're in this group and conversations happening and the conversation veers into a topic that we have little to no interest in. We may politely feign interest which actually is not wrong, it's kind of self-centered, I would say, if we think that every conversation a group should have is one that I have personal interest in. So it's, it's okay that, that we feign interest. We'll actually learn something when we do that, listening conversations about topics that are not our primary interest. We can broaden our knowledge. We can learn about new things. Still, our involvement in the conversation will be different if the conversation moves into a topic that interests us. For example, Grace and I are often in groups in conversation together, being husband and wife, that happens quite often, and, and sometimes the conversation moves into the topic of nutrition. Grace has a lot of interest in nutrition. She reads books about nutrition. She, she loves to, to think about it. it it's something that, that she thinks about. It's not an interest that I have. The only things I know about nutrition are things that I've picked up listening to her talk about it. Now, because I've picked up several things over the year, I can actually sometimes contribute to a conversation on nutrition. But it's to a limited extent. And when I contribute, I don't do so with a lot of fervency. By contrast, if the topic of conversation moves into coffee, 
especially coffee roasting, I will jump in with great fervency. I enjoy roasting coffee. I I love talking about the process that involved, how the beans work and the whole science behind it. I usually will talk with such vigor that it takes a while to notice that everybody else's eyes have glazed over minutes ago. And I need to let the conversation veer into another area. That's the idea of fervency. We can feign interest. We, we can force our, our involvement, but we cannot fake fervency. Fervency is an emotional component. It, it, it must come from genuine emotions. Unless it does, it doesn't really, truly exist. You know, if, if I dutifully tell my wife I love her, but there's no emotion attached to the words, she'll know. She'll know. She'll recognize that love is not genuine. The, the words, I love you, are insufficient unless they, they carry an emotional component. And unless they have some weight behind them. It's only when there's this genuine emotion behind the words, I love you, that my wife knows is genuine. There's a genuine fervency behind those words. Now, as we've discussed before on this topic, there's different kinds of love. Our our Christian love for one another is not the same kind of love as my romantic love for my wife. But according to Paul, the, the need for genuine fervency must underlie our Christian love for one another. That is necessary. Only fervent love is genuine love. Our love must have genuine fervency. That's the first thing to consider this morning as we unpack these three words that that Paul gives us. Our love must have genuine fervency. We can add to that, secondly, that our love must have spirit-empowered fervency. It must have spirit-empowered fervency. Look at that phrase in verse 11 again. Fervent in spirit. We, we unpack the, the word that Paul uses for fervent, but let's also consider the word for spirit. If we're really to understand this characteristic of genuine love, we must understand that word as well. We must be fervent in spirit. Now, it's not unusual whenever we encounter the, the word spirit in the New Testament. If, if you study it all, you, you often discover that there's some debate around that word. There, there's debate as to whether this word refers to the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. The same word is used for both. It's, in fact, the, the same Greek word, the, the word pneuma, is used for breath from our mouth, it's used for wind blowing, and it's used for spirit, the human spirit and the Holy Spirit. Context is the only thing that can determine the meaning. What does it mean in this use? Sometimes, though, there's just not enough context to make things clear. We, we know in this context it's not talking about my breath, or it's not talking about the wind, it's talking about spirit. But is it talking about the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? It's hard to have a context when you have three words. And one of them is the word the in the original language, the spirit. We, we only have three words to form our immediate context. Some, some commentators argue that since the next phrase, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week, 
includes the, the word Lord that Paul must be referring to the Holy Spirit in this case. Others argue that, that Paul is, is focused on what we need for genuine love, so he must re, be referring to our human spirit. Personally, I don't know. How is that for an answer? In, in this case, I prefer to ride the fence, so to speak. I, I agree with those commentators who suggest Paul might just be referring to both human spirit and Holy Spirit in this verse. Paul certainly knew that, that this word pneuma is used for both human spirit and Holy Spirit. Paul has written so many letters in the New Testament, and throughout those letters, he uses this word in context to refer to the human spirit. He uses it in context that clearly referred to the Holy Spirit. He knows that word refers to both. Likewise, Paul is not such a novice writer that he would fail to recognize that in this particular case, he hasn't given us enough context to, to resolve the ambiguity. He knows the word's ambiguous, and he's put it in a context that's going to leave ambiguity behind. I think that means a likely explanation is that, that Paul is using the word spirit in an ambiguous way, knowing that this one word communicates two aspects of the same point. Our fervency if we have genuine love, our fervency must affect our human spirit. And yet, at the same time, our human spirit will only find that kind of fervency through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Paul can communicate both with one word, both ideas. Let's go back to the the idea of water boiling. The, The boiling happens in the water, we know that, it's water boiling, it happens in the water, but it requires a heat source like, like the stove to, to make it happen. I can place a pot of water on the stove, and if I don't turn on the heat, it doesn't matter how long I leave it there, it won't boil. I can stare at it as hard as I want. I can even yell at it. I can cheer it on with words of encouragement. But unless I heat it up, it will never boil. When it comes to genuine Christian love, the same is true with our spirit. We will never have the fervency that we need as Christians to show love unless the Holy Spirit empowers us. That the Holy Spirit energizes our Christian love. In order to understand this idea a little bit, let's go back once more to to some of the basics of salvation. Things that that we know. These are basic ideas. Our sin nature, which leads to real sin in our lives, not only separated us from God, it also convinced us that, that we were the most important being in the universe. Our natural inclination is to look out for ourselves, to care for us to protect ourselves, to to honor ourselves, to reward ourselves. In short, our our sin nature causes us to love ourselves. When we find our salvation in Christ, we receive a new nature, a a born-again nature, a spiritual nature. And, And this new nature recognizes, you know what? God happens to be the most important being in the universe. I'm not the important person after all. God is important. He is ultimate. And now our new nature causes us to want to serve God. Our new nature allows us to love God and, and to love the things that God loves. It actually gives us new affections. 
Well, God loves those who bear his image. God loves people. And God loves in a very special way those image bearers, those particular image bearers who his son gave his life for. Christians. And for that reason, our new nature encourages us, urges us, allows us to be able to love other people rather than just loving ourselves. We're able to do this because of the transforming work of God. He does it in us when we are in Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing he died for our sins, we receive as part of our salvation this new nature. In John 15, verse 5, our Savior himself pictures it this way. Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. Or he bears much fruit. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Christ himself says that it's our faith that connects us. And, and that connection is to him. He is our vine. We receive our nourishment, our energy from him. Our spiritual energy comes from our Savior. Unless we're connected to Christ, we do not have any energy. And therefore, we cannot do nothing that has any, of any value spiritually. What we need to understand, though, is that the way that we are connected to Christ, the, the way that we receive this spiritual energy, the way that flows from the vine to us, is not through a mystical process of any kind. It's through a person, a person's actions. The personal action, really, of the triune God. God the Father has planned how this will action, act and work, how it will happen. God, God the Son has secured what is to happen. It's God the Spirit, though, is the one who actually accomplishes what happens. The one who actively accomplishes it in our life is the Spirit. The, the one who keeps us connected to Jesus is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who, who was sent by Christ to serve as our helper. He's the one who indwells us from the, the moment that we pl first place our faith in Jesus Christ until the moment that we exchange this frail body for our glorified body so, and stand before our Lord. It's the Spirit who keeps our spiritual life alive. And the Holy Spirit is also the one who fills us with all spiritual enablement, the, the spiritual energy, if you will. Now, if you're listening carefully, you'll have caught that I just used the word feeling for the Spirit's work of spiritual enablement. The Spirit fills us. We're to recognize that, that while the Holy Spirit's indwelling is continuous, it's, it's constant, it's permanent in our lives, it keeps us as believers, it preserves us. The feeling is not continuous. The Holy Spirit's feeling is our enablement for spiritual activity. It's the means by which the Spirit energizes our, our spiritual efforts. The Holy Spirit's feeling is the Holy Spirit's empowering us to, to have fervency in our human spirit for spiritual things, such as what we're considering today, genuine love. The Holy Spirit fills us with his enablement so we have genuine love. 
The, the reality that, that we need to recognize here this morning is that the Holy Spirit's feeling is not constant. In fact, the, the New Testament makes it clear that the, the feeling of the Holy Spirit is connected to our spiritual efforts. Specifically, our yielding to God's will. It's connected to our pursuit of God's commandments. When we do things like harboring sin in our lives, we will find that the Holy Spirit fills our spirit with much less fervency. For example, one of the first things, really, that, that should clue you in to the fact that you're making wrong decisions in your life is when you find that your desire to come to church and worship is waning. When you start realizing, you know, I just don't really want to go to church on Sundays. Sin is deceitful. That's one of the things that we have to recognize. Sin is deceitful. Sin can convince us that, that something seems logical, that, that something sounds rational when it is neither because it's sinful. We may not recognize sin for what it is, is, but the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit knows sin. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does when sin is deceiving us is causes our fervency to wane. He fills us to a lesser extent. Oftentimes, I will fear that, that sin is winning out in, in lives of people within our church long before I know anything is going on simply by standing up here on a Sunday morning and observing the lack of joy in worship and, and then recognizing there's an inconsistency in, in attendance in church. And then a while later, I learn that sin is... Making an inroad. To keep spirit-empowered fervency in our lives, we need to work at the spiritual disciplines that God's revealed in His Word. Things like spending time reading and studying His Word, spending time praying, spending time worshiping with other believers, spending time serving others through the local church. These are all things that, that feed this new nature that we receive in salvation. And these are things that, that work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to produce fervency in our human spirit. Fervency for spiritual things. As we wrap up this second point, let me ask you, how are you doing? Is there fervency in your life? Are you looking to the Spirit to fill you by yielding to the Word of God? Are you doing the things that you should do? Are you turning from sin? Are you, are you pursuing obedience to God's commands? Can you validate your claims by examining yourself and seeing that, yes, I have spiritual empowered fervency in my human spirit for the things of God. I want to do what God says I ought to be doing. I actually have a genuine love for others. Now, I urge you today, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself with simplistic answers. Do the hard self-assessment that generate, gener, generates an accurate answer. And where you find yourself falling short, make changes. Our love must have spirit-empowered fervency. Only fervent love is genuine love. As we've considered, our love must have genuine fervency and our love must have spirit-empowered fervency. Those were the, the two considerations that, that we 
see here as we unpack this short characteristic of verse 11, fervent in spirit. Before we conclude this morning, let's also consider a third point, a third idea. The third idea is that our love must have fervent activity. Think again about water boiling. When water boils, things happen. There is activity. Water does not remain calm. It doesn't remain sedate and boil at the same time. There's activity. And the same is true with our love, if it's a fervent love. When there's fervency in our spirit, there will be activity. When this trait is present, we'll have it. Our fervent activity will will turn our thoughts of love into actions of love. Actions that boil over in our lives. Now, some of you have probably had similar experiences to, to mine. More than once I've come home and I found Grace tearing the house apart looking for something. She thought she knew where something was, but, but when she went to look for it, it wasn't there. It wasn't in that place. Sometimes she didn't even need the object or the item when she discovered it was missing. Just the simple fact is not where she expected to be means the house has to be torn apart till either one, it's found, or two, we've checked every possible place at least three times. So I come home and I rapidly learn that nothing else will be done until we finish this search. That's the kind of picture of fervent activity that should be attached to genuine love in our lives. When, when we hear that someone in our midst, one of our brothers and sisters, has a need that we're in a position to meet, nothing should stop us from meeting that need. When we notice that our brother or sister needs comfort, nothing should hold us back from providing that comfort. When we see the need for encouragement, we should practically break down the door in our fervent zeal to provide encouragement. You know, there's a picture of this kind of fervency that genuine love should generate that that comes out of the sad events that occurred in Texas this past week. I'm sure many stories will come out over the the following days and weeks, but, but one that caught my eye was the story of a border guard who was in a barber shop getting a haircut when he received a text message from his wife that a gunman was in the school. His wife was a teacher in the school. His daughter was a student in the school. And his, he learned through the text message that his wife was hiding with her class from the gunman. The man immediately borrowed a shotgun from the barber and went into the school. Rushed there and went in and, and actually helped bring out many students as he searched for his wife and daughter. There was no way that he would hold back. His love for his family drove him to fervent action. Folks, we need to realize that our love is not genuine if there is not fervent action associated with it. If we can sit here and say, I love somebody, and yet not be moved when we see their need, our love isn't genuine. If we leave this morning and we go home, and we enjoy our week in blessed isolation from one another, waiting for next Sunday to roll around so that we can return and repeat, our love is not genuine. 
Genuine love will cause us to get involved with the lives of the people who are in this room. In fact, we will feel a fervency that cannot keep us from reaching out in love to others. Again, ask yourself the hard questions. Are you engaged with the people around you? Our culture is becoming more and more isolated, less and less engaged with each other. We've replaced a lot of physical connections for simulated virtual connections. We may have hundreds of so-called friends. I'll put that in quotes, air quotes. We may have so-called hundreds of friends on social media and yet rarely talk to real live people. This is not a recipe for genuine love. We cannot boil over in fervent activity if we yield to such a lifestyle. This is one area we must resist our culture and engage with one another in fervent activity. Failure to have fervent activity is a failure to have genuine love. And a failure to have genuine love is a failure to distinguish ourselves as Christians. We must pursue fervent activity in order to display genuine love. Our love must have fervent activity. That's the third point we must consider this morning. Only fervent love is genuine. Only fervent love is genuine. That's the idea that that comes from this three-word characteristic that Paul gives us, fervent in spirit. Only fervent love is genuine. When we think about genuine love, let's picture a boiling water pot. Genuine love is not something that simmers. Genuine love boils. It's fervent. One, our love must have genuine fervency. Two, our love must have spirit-empowered fervency. And three, our love must have fervent activity. Only fervent love is genuine love. Let's pray. Father, we want to be men and women who have genuine Christian love. We want to show the world that we love our Savior and we know that one of the ways by which our Savior is told if that will occur is as the world sees our love for one another, an inexplicable love, a love that is sourced and pivots on our love for Christ, a love that is enabled by spirit enablement. Father, I pray today that you would help us to examine ourselves, see where we are falling short of this characteristic of being fervent in spirit. And may we be changed so that we will be fervent-filled, have fervent love for one another. Because, Father, we do want to joyfully magnify our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.